0: Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by Tom Wright of the Brookings Institute to discuss how domestic politics impacts U.S. grand strategy. The two go into detail about how both Democrats and Republicans currently view U.S. strategy in Asia and where both parties converge and diverge when it comes to the China challenge. Now that there will be a transfer of power in the White House, what does the recent 2020 US election tell us about the US role in the world and in Asia specifically?
1: Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I am joined by one of the most perceptive minds in Washington on the national zeitgeist on foreign policy and particular thinking in the Democratic-Republican administrations about China and about Asia. Tom Wright at the Brookings Institution, Georgetown PhD, and author of All Measures Short of War, which when it came out in uh, around 2017 was really the first definitive strategic uh, framework for what we now consider our new world, which is strategic competition with revisionist powers, China first and foremost but uh, Russia in Europe and Iran and the Middle East. And Tom, terrific having you on, on board, well, welcome.
0: Thanks, Mike, it's great to be here. I listen all the time, so it's a real, a real pleasure to be on the podcast.
1: Well, You have a, a lot to, to tell us about what this election meant, but let's start with you first. People are always interested. As they say in Texas, you don't sound like you're from around here. So tell us your background, how'd you get into the foreign policy world and, and the focus on Asia?
0: Yeah, so I um, was born and grew up in in Dublin, in Ireland, and went to college there, did history and politics as an undergrad, was always really interested in international affairs. Then when I was 22, I guess I I went to Cambridge to do a one-year sort of master's in international studies, which really got me into sort of the field for the first time. And then after a couple of years back home, I came over to the US, to Georgetown, university when I was 25 to start a PhD. That was four weeks before 9-11 in August of one. And so I've been here ever since. And at Georgetown, you know, was really fortunate to work with a lot of really terrific people that really, you know, work closely with people like John Eikenberry, who was there at that point, Charlie Kupshen and others who sort of work at that nexus of international relations theory and grand strategy. And so I was always, I think, as a PhD student, quite interested in those strategy questions and bounced around a little bit at different pre-docs and postdocs, and ended up sort of working at Princeton for Amory Slaughter on a project um, on grand strategy at the time, a multi-year sort of bipartisan project um, that I was sort of the drafter of a report for that, again, was pretty useful in getting to know just the general debates and discussions and after that, when I sort of finished my PhD and finished the postdoc, um, I was at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs for a few years and then made it back down to Washington to Brookings. So that's sort of the short, uh, short uh, version.
1: So you, um, you obviously worked your way up the food t- chain from Trinity to Cambridge to Georgetown, although unfortunately it was before I was at Georgetown, I was at SAIS at the time. But tell me, you know, you've worked a lot on grant strategy and you work with people like John Eikenberry and Anne-Marie Slaughter. For a long time, the grand strategy name was owned by realist, hyper-realist Republicans, people in the Henry Kissinger strategy. What does a Anne-Marie Slaughter, John Eikenberry, Tom Wright grand strategy concept look like? It's different, I assume, from what we think of as the Kissinger, Hans Morgenthau, uh, hyper-realist grand strategy when you're talking about liberal institutionalists like Anne-Marie and John Eikenberry.
0: Yeah. You know, Anne-Marie and John obviously are two exceptional theorists and writers and and strategists. I I learned a lot from them. I do think they're fairly different. I think I would be different again um, from them. But what I think they, that sort of debate that took place in the 2000s was really on the nature of American power and the nature of unipolarity, right? And the the opportunity the U.S. had to sort of shape that world. And people went off in different directions about how they would do that, right? John, I think, was very focused on sort of the institutionalization piece and how the U.S. could sort of reassure other countries and allies by, you know, nesting its own power in these institutional restraints, whereas, you know, Anne-Marie was sort of more focused on network cooperation of the substate. Level, I think my interest in it really was initially on sort of the absence of balancing against the U.S., like why we weren't seeing the normal historical trends and the benefits of that sort of liberal international order. But then from the sort of middle late 2000s on, it was really uh, this rise of sort of illiberal alternatives, particularly in China, and then increasingly from 2011 on in Russia, whether or not that was compatible With that liberal order. And the the liberals basically sort of split on that issue, I think. Some uh, remained until quite recently pretty optimistic that China will become a responsible stakeholder and will be part of it. Others sort of saw that illiberal element and worried about what it would mean and wanted to go back to more of the core group than to have a universal group. So, you know, the liberal internationalism stuff is often described Externally is a bit of a monolith, you know, they all want to intervene everywhere, or they have similar sort of notions about American power. I think that's you know, definitely sort of an oversimplification. There were, um, I think different sort of strands were sort of were sort of interesting in their own right. But to me, I was always sort of more of a bit of a fusion, I guess, of some of the liberal uh, you know, the, the liberal ideas about you know, the U.S. being able to shape an affirmative vision of international order, plus some sort of realism concerned about great power competition and that fundamentally this is based on power rather
1: than the world
0: having normatively evolved into a different place maybe than where it was before.
1: So the focus of your work and your book, All Measures Short of War, that stands out to me is that it is a grand strategy for Uh, opposing regional revisionists. So ultimately, it requires regional strategies, both a global sense of order and norms and institutions, but the, the fight, so to speak, and by that I mean the fight is statecraft, coercion, gray zone coercion, all means short of war. The fight is region by region. And I think you were one of the early people in that line of thinking to really point to that. But it now seems, at least looking at the people who advise Joe Biden, whether they're Brookings or Carnegie or elsewhere, it seems like that is now widely accepted as what we're facing in Asia, a regional revisionist uh, competitor in China. Do you think that, is that a fair characterization? It seems to me the, the field has moved in your direction because you called it right.
0: Yeah, I, I think my, to me, sort of the, you know, when I sort of started on that regional route, it was really trying to respond to those who would say, that you know, we shouldn't worry about China because it's not a global power, it's a regional power. It only wants to revise its, uh, the status quo in its region. It doesn't have an alternative to the UN or to the WTO or to those sort of, you know, the bread and woods institutions or anything else. And my point, which I, I, I know we, we agree on, is that, you know, international order, world order to the extent it exists is based on healthy regional orders, right? It was the fact after World War II that the U.S. basically got Asia right and basically got Europe right that allowed for global cooperation. And, you know, Kenan understood that. Lots of people sort of understood that back then. If those regional orders collapsed, particularly in Europe and Asia, then the global institutions would follow. Like the global institutions are based on regional stability and not the other way around. You know, uh, five years ago, it was pretty commonplace for people to think that the most important thing was the international institutions, the global norms, the global institutions. So I think it is regional. I think what happens in Asia is profoundly important, not just for Asia and the US, but for the entire world. I think what sort of happened since too, though, and I guess one place where I've slightly not changed my view, but it's just evolved a bit is I didn't fully understand when I was writing the book in 2016 or finishing it then, you know, just the the global nature of China's power as well in the normative side with Belt and Road, you know, with some of the ideological stuff that they're trying to universalize their censorship laws or put pressure on other countries to make domestic choices to their liking as far away as Europe and and elsewhere. And so I think it's it's both global and regional, but I, I still think that the core of it is regional. You know, we have to get that regional piece right.
1: I mean, the historical pattern is that rising powers, whether they're democracies or not, are not revisionist globally first, they're revisionist regionally, and they free ride globally. It's what the Germans did with the British in the 19th century under Bismarck, it's what the Japanese did with the British in the early 20th century, it's what we did in the 19th century. We were revisionist regionally, ask Mexico. Uh, don't ask Canada because we weren't very successful on that front. Or if you're Asian, ask Korea or ask um, Schleswig or Holstein about German revisionism, but it was regional for these rising powers. It seems to me that's primarily what China's doing. But you're right, in the last year or two, with Belt and Road, with Common Destiny, with some of uh, Xi Jinping's rhetoric about the multilateral order, China is at least playing a normative game. I'm not sure, though, at the end of the day, China's that different. It's still primarily a regional revisionist game. It's the neighborhood where they feel threatened and where they feel... They're owed some hegemony, I would say.
0: Exactly. And I think the other piece of it that we often miss is that revisionism, if done right, is actually a highly effective strategy just in terms of its prospects of success, right? Because what a revisionist power does is it basically covets territories or places that are fairly peripheral to the major power, right? That it doesn't care as much about as they do. And then it is able to say, do you want to hold our entire relationship at risk for this island or this little chunk of land? And, you know, today, obviously that's, you know, Crimea in Europe, it's the South China Sea and and elsewhere in Asia. But back in previous eras, you know, they were also obscure places of which people knew very little and didn't even know the names of. And it was exactly the same debate, right? And so I think revisionism is a hugely thorny problem. It's not an easy, you know, let's just be strong because it, it, is a, it actually has a clever insight at its core, which is if you chip away and there is this overall relationship, which is pretty valuable to the, to the status quo power that you can, you know, exploit quite a lot of that and, and, and make quite a lot of gains and then accrue them over time.
1: I think I agree with that. And I think the problem with the traditional liberal institutionalist approach Uh, to the world and especially to Asia was, the instinct as China began to have more friction with us was to seek institutions to stabilize the U.S.-China relationship, like the new model of great power relations, like the strategic and economic dialogue in the Obama administration. And to be fair, like the strategic economic dialogue Hank Paulson started at the end of the Bush administration, there was a... You know, there are liberal institutionalists on the Republican side, too. And the initial evolution from unipolarity to a regional liberal institutional approach following the same logic was let's stabilize bilateral bipolar relations with China, which played right into the Chinese revisionist argument um, by marginalizing the Japans and the Indonesias and the Australias and the Indias. And now in public opinion polls, it seems like people get that the way to deal with a revisionist China is with our allies and partners. And certainly if you saw the CSIS survey we did, over 80% of thought leaders, not just foreign policy, but agriculture, business, 81% said the way to deal with China is strengthen alliances and partnerships. That's our center of gravity. That's what China's revisionism is aimed at whittling away. And it seems like from Brookings to CSIS to Carnegie to Heritage to the Center for American Progress, You'd ha- you have to go pretty far to the left or the right to find someone who now dissents. But let me turn to the election result. Does this election result in 2020, does it tell us that we're going to have a little more clarity about that, do you think, about the strategic uh, approach the U.S. should take in Asia and the world? Or do you think the result with a possibly Republican-controlled Senate, Trump continuing to attack from... I guess, outside the White House in uh, 2021 and on, Biden dealing with the left of his own party. Is this a muddied result in terms of American role in the world in Asia? Or do you think there's some messages in here that connect to what we were just talking about, to to more of a coherent strategy to the region?
0: Yeah, I mean, my sense of it, and you you probably have a better insight into it than me, but my sense of it is that the Asian allies are actually pretty delighted with the result, right? Because... um, You know, that sort of long, there was always this question with Trump, even though he was quite tough in China, there were sort of two concerns about him. One was that, you know, they didn't know if he was really in the competition for the long term or if he could flip, you know, if he would have different advisors in the second term, you know, maybe he would strike a deal with Xi Jinping like the January deal, but on steroids and sort of begin to pull out. And he always had this anti-Japan element in his thinking, And with, you know, Prime Minister Abe gone and, and, you know, new prime minister, there was just lots of uncertainty there. And then the second thing was that the very sort of Manichean nature of the way in which the administration, particularly Secretary Pompeo, talks about China, you know, I think was also a little bit discomforting to some of the uh, allies in Asia who wanted this, you know, more nuanced relationship with China, even though they wanted to to, to balance against it. So they, they got rid of that by getting Biden, but they also would having the Republican Senate, you know, have sort of a check on those elements of Democratic Party foreign policy that they have concerns with. So I think from their point of view, it wasn't a bad result. Now, whether or not that's true, you know, I guess we can debate and discuss and we'll know over time. I just mean in terms of how the Australians, you know, maybe the the Japanese and others, Taiwan sort of look at this. The mixed outcome is not a bad outcome.
1: Yeah, I think that's probably right. The, the survey we did at CSIS certainly certainly shows that for the most part. You know, Donald Trump was a little bit of, um, a little bit like Sigourney Weaver in Alien. You never knew when he was going to suddenly pop out and horrify uh, and terrify your your government. And that was true for even close allies like Japan and Australia. This Trumpism was so wildly unpredictable. And you probably saw Prime Minister Abe let it let it slip in an on-the-record moment that he was exhausted managing Donald Trump. So I think that most of our allies prefer centrists, and Joe Biden's a man of the center. And our allies really depend on multilateral engagement and steadiness. And if uh, we see Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Michelle Fornoy and people like that, that's a very steady... Team, a very reliable team. There is nervousness among the allies that perhaps parts of a Biden administration might go back to the old, new model of great power relations, trying to cozy up to China too much. I, I thought it was interesting in his early statements, President elect Biden has used the word Indo Pacific. He's not using free and open, which I think will be reassuring for Japan and Australia and India that there's going to be a continuation, at least. There appears to be a continuation of this kind of maritime strategy, this Mahanian focus on maritime allies that I would say Trump, not himself because he never understood it, but, but people in the Trump administration get, should get some credit for. And I, you can't expect the Biden folks to use the same label, but by using free, uh, not free and open, but Indo-Pacific, it seems like there's a continuity. I don't know if you see see the continuity. Yeah. There are other voices, yeah. of course. Yeah.
0: I think that's fair. Yeah, and look, I think you know. I think, like you said, I mean, the reported early appointments, I think, will be very sort of reassuring. All of those figures have sort of deep histories in you know alliance relationships in in the region and have have visited sort of many times. I think. I think in the broader sort of Democratic foreign policy establishment, there still is a debate on China, you know, and you still mm-hmm. you still have a little bit of you know you have those elements that might want you know to explore. The, you know, a new strategic and economic dialogue, and to say, well, look, you know, we understand that China is partly responsible for this current state of affairs, but there's, you know, we need to cooperate on COVID and on climate change and other things. And then there were those who, you know, of course, think cooperation is required, on mutual interest, but are skeptical of what it would produce, and believe there are limits to it. And the overall relationship is pretty competitive. My view has always been that. Even if that is mixed in the early stages, you know, reality will sort of sort it out over the course of the first year or two, right? Because to me, most of this is driven by Beijing, and so as that becomes sort of apparent, it will it will definitely sort of shape Biden's foreign policy in that direction. But I have to say, I'm very encouraged, you know, by the early signs. that I think that they're on the right track. They may not need to go through a lengthy sort of evolution on it. I think they're on the right track. Uh, And sort of setting the right
1: tone, and the politics are smarter if you start with allies and don't rush to a G two with China. I mean, that's where this Republican Senate, assuming we have one after January, it kind of looks that way. But but even if it's close, a close Senate can still complicate things. And it's smart politics to to do allies and not you know why would Joe Biden use his political capital on a high profile condominium with China that's not going to go anywhere? So I think. Politics at home, if if not foreign policy strategy, will guide this. But but you know, an early cue will be the sequencing. Does he do things with allies first? I
0: think one thing worth sort of looking at, and that I've been sort of looking at a fair bit recently, is you know the the case for a more China focused strategy really is about transnational challenges, right? And it's really you know, about climate, about COVID and other issues and saying, look, you know, we need to cooperate with China. So one thing I've done recently is sort of gone back and looked at, you know, the global health diplomacy over the last 15 years. And it's quite interesting, you know, China after 2003 and SARS put in place these reforms to prevent a more, you know, secretive, uncooperative approach to pandemics. The US and Europe engaged a lot with China, built capacity in China, in Chinese labs, including Wuhan, really worked, you know, that internally. It seemed like it worked and was quite effective as late as the summer of 2019. And then it all melted away in December 19 when COVID hit, and we went back to sort of to the worst days of SARS or even even worse than that. And I think, you know, to me, there's a lesson there, which is yes, we need to cooperate with China, but the nature of its regime means there are real limits to what that cooperation can produce. And there is much greater potential for cooperation yielding you know, real improvements by working with allies, other free and open societies to get that sort of common position, common standards on everything from global public health to climate to economics. And then definitely try to work with China as well uh, after doing all of that. Um, But let's just learn the lessons correctly, I think, of the last decade and a half. So I think that's an important issue to sort of engage because the more sort of G2-esque view is just that, like, you can't do any of this without working with Beijing, right? Which I think is, you know, overstates the case.
1: Which, early in the Obama administration, people were saying they were positioning the US, I think, as the demandor in the relationship with China. Like, we really need China for climate change. We really, no, this is, China needs to deal with climate change so that the Chinese people can breathe. It's in their interests. And I think if the, and I, it, all signs that they will, if, if the Biden team comes in, not seeking China's help as the demandeur but because we both have interests in this, and if they, if they make it clear that the pace setter is not China, actually, it's Taiwan and Korea. You know, it's, it's, it's our allies and partners who are doing the best. I think the, the script for them is almost writes itself. What about, just turning back the Democratic Party, we'll, we'll psychoanalyze the Republicans in a second. I, I don't see a whole lot of evidence of the Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders wings on foreign policy or defense. It seems like they're saving their ammunition to deal with you know, financial regulations and things like that. But what do you make of that wing of the Democratic Party as it pertains to Asia and, and, and security and diplomacy?
0: yeah i I follow that quite closely in the primary and it was quite interesting so warren sort of carved out a view which was that the us is fighting against this sort of kleptocratic corrupt authoritarian network internationally which you know has russia and china and and other sort of countries including maybe hungary and brazil you know, increasingly under Bolsonaro as part of it, and then elements within the U.S. as well, those Trumpian elements, and that she wanted the U.S. to sort of push back against that, you know, economically, diplomatically, politically, and really to lead a, a fairly ideological struggle against it to try to ensure sort of that liberal democracy prevailed. So in a lot of ways, and Bernie Sanders talked a bit about that, but less about China, much more about Russia, right? So he brought China in a little bit later on, but he was mainly going after Putin. And so it was a, it was a little bit of an unusual route for the progressives to take, because one might have thought they might be more sort of less pull back from the world and do less. Sounds
1: like John McCain.
0: <laughs> yeah, they were making the case to push out. Now the one thing I think that they pull back from was on defense spending, right? So they wanted pretty dramatic cuts, starting out with a 12% cut, which I think they just sort of threw out there. They looked at the overseas contingency operations budget, which is about 12% and said, let's cut that even though That includes a lot of pretty important things in it, including NATO funds and Bahrain and other things. So they had this sort of contradiction, which was, you know, they wanted to compete, but they also didn't want to compete geopolitically and on defense policy. And I think that the concern in the region when you... Were about January, February, when it looked like Warren could win or, or Sanders could win. You know, that's what they were really worried about. You know, you can't be credible if you're sort of dramatically cutting the defense budget and pulling back militarily. Since then, um, they really have sort of, I think, just focused more on domestic policy and the foreign economic policy, which is what really concerns them, and and less so on the sort of geopolitical side. Um. I think Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan both played a pretty big role after the primary in talking to progressives. And one thing you hear from progressives is that they really appreciated that. So I think that both of those people are pretty well placed to listen. I think listening is sort of important, but I don't think they're gonna have a lot of pressure um, in terms of the, you know, in terms of Asia policy. And I think Mike just the way the Senate turned out make sort of major defense cuts a dead letter immediately, you know, so that would have been the one place they would have put pressure on. That's very unlikely to happen now. You know, maybe some nominal or very modest cuts, but nothing, you know, in the realm of 10, 12, 15%. So I think that that also sort of makes it a little less salient as a as a fissure in the Democratic Party.
1: What about trade, though? I mean, you look at the transition teams and the USDR transition team has a lot of progressives. And it may be that that's where the progressives get their points, is keeping us out of CPTPP, perhaps. What, what do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that the TPP, I think if it happens, it will happen in year sort of three, maybe late two, three, four, not immediately. I think they want to send a message that they're doing this differently. They'll probably try to have more focused uh, agreements organized around responding to China um, less on regulatory alignment in specific sectors and more on sort of those big macro issues, in particular about Europe, they're going to want to talk about tax and data and tech. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in, in the Asia context, the tech piece, in, 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 you know, uh, especially, um, but anything really that is, is trying to respond to China's rise, which I know TPP was doing, but it may be sort of more bilateral or minilateral. And then if it adds up in the aggregate to allowing sort of entry into TPP at some point in the future, I think they'll do that, but they're going to avoid big multilaterals, you know, at the early stage. And I think that's sort of just politically inevitable. And I don't think it's all that concerning as long as they're very active. The other thing just to keep in mind is the progressive centrist divide in this is Less, I think, about protectionism and more about the type of issues that they want to discuss, right? So the progressist point would be, why is foreign economic policy only FTAs? You know, why, why doesn't it also include these larger issues in the global economy that people in both parties are upset with, which is why they're voting for these populists, right? So can we try to address some of those? Um, so if that's where the energy is, I think, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That could be a good thing, right, in terms of sort of, addressing some of the concerns people have.
1: So the technology piece, there is a natural progression from the US-Canada-Mexico agreement, USMCA, and the US-Japan agreement, digital trade chapters, to a TPP, not TPP, but certain TPP members doing a, a digital trade or tech agreement, for example. And I think the TPP broader piece, it's gonna take, we're gonna have to do them differently. Half of trade agreements don't have a gender inclusion chapter. There's gonna be an expectation for more on labor, uh, more on the environment. So it's going to take some time to get to that broad TPP thing. I, I think I agree with you. But there are some early moves they could make and framing it around competition with China that, that would play well with key allies. What about Trumpism, the Republicans? I mean, I, I think the, the sort of Ronald Reagan, McCain, George W. Bush Republican thinking about the world in Asia is alive and well in the Senate, with the exception of a handful of members. But Trumpism will also be alive because he'll still be out there. How does that either shape or mess up what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, I think when you're talking about China and Asia, you know, it's really important to distinguish between Trumpism minus Trump and Trumpism with Trump, you know, because there are lots of people who are trying to define Trumpism and they see themselves at the helm of it, whether it's Ted Cruz or Tom Cotton or Josh Foley or Nikki Haley, you know, whoever it is. And they, I think, will try to redefine Republican internationalism to be about containment of China, a bit more populist on the economic side, but broadly they'll want to keep that frame and they'll probably see Europe and other alliances as part of that as well and try to package all that together and sort of make a very sort of fairly assertive argument on China. So that I think is probably what they will try to do. The problem they have is if Trump himself runs again in 2024, you know, or if it's a member of the family who's a nominee or Tucker Carlson, you know, who's the nominee, then it could take on a totally different view, right? It could be actually isolationist. It could be less pull out of, you know, US-Japan or US-Korea or NATO. Um, so there is sort of a wild card there. So as long as, you know, as long as Trump, I'm always someone, you know, I'm, did, worked a lot on Trump as an individual and what he believed about the world, because I always thought that, you know, yes, he was a symptom, but he was also a cause, right? He was a cause, you know, if Ted Cruz had caught lightning in a bottle in, in 2016 and become president, he, he, I'm sure I would have disagreed with them on like 95% of things, but he would have not, you know, responded the same way Trump did on COVID, right? He would not have basically denied that it existed and and told people not to wear a mask, right? He would not have um, threatened to pull out of NATO. So there is an element of Trumpism unique to him. So that's a long way of answering your question to say, as long as he's around, I think it's a big wild card about uh, the future US role in the world, because there's not a guarantee that Berlusconi, like he won't come back in 2025.
1: You say wildcard, the metaphor that comes to mind for me is lit match in a powder magazine, Uh, because consistently in polls, about 20 percent of Americans say we don't want to deal with the world. I mean, that isolationist sentiment in the public is probably about a fifth, probably about 20 percent. And in Congress, it's even lower. Uh, CSIS has surveyed members of Congress and it's even lower. But you get a maybe a Tucker Carlson or or a Donald Trump Jr. or Trump himself coming back on an isolationist, like a real 1930s America First agenda, pulling out of NATO and Korea, maybe even Japan. That could become the, the cause for the Trump movement. That could suddenly go from 20% to 40%. So it worries me, actually. And that's where the Lindsey Graham's and, uh, you know, Republican members of Congress who are internationalists are really going to have to make a call at considerable <laughs> risk to themselves. If, if that happens, I'm not predicting it, but it's 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 a little dangerous.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's leadership is so important because, firstly, a lot of people will have their impulses shaped and directed by what the leader is saying. right? So they may be isolationists, but they're unlikely to be chomping at the bit to get out of NATO unless one of their leaders says this is what we should do, you know, and then. Right. That person may also get others. And the other piece, which I have to say I got wrong from the very beginning, was, you know, just I, I thought that Republicans in the Senate would be more outspoken for where they disagreed with Trump on things. And increasingly, you know, they've done a little bit of that on key issues, you know, beneath the radar. But for the most part, they've sort of gone along. And that I don't think will, will sort of change either.
1: The one area where I might might disagree with you, Tom, I think that's depressingly true on domestic policy, on the election, on Trump and his allies, you know, just outright lies about fraud in the election and so forth. I think on defense policy, the Republicans have done a lot on the Hill. You know, they blocked any moves to withdraw from Korea. They, you know, every year OMB zeroed out funding for democracy and governance, and every year Republicans put it back in. So in stuff that's not tweetable, They've done a lot, but the line seems to be once Donald Trump starts tweeting at you, you you risk being primary yeah. and Trump's been very inconsistent on these Ford uh, deployments, and no one's really triggered his anger on those issues. But if it becomes the thing for Trumpism, then th- that's worrisome. I guess that's what I'm getting at. will they will these Republicans continue to do what they've done, I think pretty effectively, blocking Trump legislatively from isolationism. will, they keep doing it when he's tweeting about it.
0: One thing I'd like to see, you know, which I think is a way of capitalizing on that sort of feeling amongst Republicans on alliance and defense issues, you know, during a Biden administration is why not try to introduce legislation you know, to require congressional approval for particularly controversial moves by a commander in chief in the future. Right. So if you want to get out of NATO, you have to have a congressional resolution. If you want to pull out of U.S. Japan, you need congressional authorization to make it sort of quite explicit, because I think one of the things that surprised people was that, you know, Trump had all of this leeway because it was just assumed that people were generally supportive of alliances. Couldn't really conceive of a president who would be the opposite. You know, in the NATO context, there's virtually no, pro- you know, the provision for withdrawing from NATO in the treaty is that the country that wants to withdraw has to inform the American president a year in advance, not the NATO secretary general, right? Because it's assumed that the American president is...
1: Yeah, the yeah, NATO. yeah.
0: Um, So maybe there are things we can do in the next four years to codify into, into legislation you know, certain internationalism, so one person can't just do it without congressional
1: approval. so like like the War Powers Act, but for treaties and yeah. and that actually that's fascinating. You could actually pull that off because Republicans would be happy to tie Joe Biden's hands and say that's what they're doing when in fact they're controlling their own party i I'm, I, I don't want to sound too pessimistic. I'm generally confident that the internationalists, especially in the Senate, will draw the line on on defense and foreign policy in a way you didn't see them do um, for example, on the election results. It won't just be Mitt Romney, but it could be a hell of a fight in the Republican Party. We'll have to see. Uh, Last thing I want to ask you, Tom. This has been fascinating. I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who are contemplating PhDs, doing PhDs, deciding whether to go to think tanks, government, academia. You got your PhD. You went for you know policy work, policy work. Any advice uh, before we finish on how people should think about careers? You've done academia. You've done think tanks. Um, it's kind of hard, as you know, to do political science or history and straddle both the policy and academic worlds, but you've done it. So any parting words of wisdom? Yeah,
0: I guess a, a few, just a few general pointers. I mean, one is, you know, doing a PhD is a huge commitment. And I think it's not for everyone. You know, I think you really want to be sure you want to do it before you do it. And it doesn't really prepare you for policy because it's increasingly, sort of methodological and, you know, theoretical and it's, you know, it's an excellent sort of training, but it is, you know, I think think tanks when they're, when they're doing recruiting, you know, probably have some questions, you know, about whether someone's sort of focused on, on policy enough. So my first bit of advice will be if you're doing a PhD and you want, you want to go into policy, try to have sort of two tracks, almost two resumes that you, that you produce over six years and one resume, is sort of focused on that academic track, you know, that you can present and has your journal articles up front and center and the teaching and all of that. And the other might be stuff you were doing at the same time in parallel, which is, you know, building connections, uh, you know, in think tanks and elsewhere. I also actually use an example to people. I say, if you're working on Japan You know, I say people like you, Mike, should be aware of their work, you know, if they're going out into the job market before they do it. And there's lots of ways they can bring it to your attention, you know, in their fifth, sixth year of a PhD, you know, by publishing it in certain journals or asking you to a conference or others. So I think that those two tracks, I think, are very important. And then the other piece, I think, is if you want to go into a think tank, think about what the think tanks are looking for. And I always advise people if you're applying for a job as a you know junior scholar or fellow, you know, produce a two-pager with a few projects you want to work on and that sort of fit into the funding model of that think tank and into their research interests and to sort of show what you would do in the job before you get the job, you know, because at least that shows your thinking along the sort of business lines that you know research institutions have, which is we're project-oriented. You know, we're concerned about where funding will come from and we're trying to figure out the next best, you know, the new question that will really make an impact on policy. So to be sort of practical uh, like that.
1: That's good advice. And we have a pretty good audience, probably a small fraction are actually contemplating PhDs, but the same logic could be applied for people in the military or in the State Department. In a way, what you're saying is have a split personality or keep one eye on the policy working on and one eye on the bigger questions, whether it's strategy or academic methodology. You kind of have to think, do two things at once. Uh, in a yeah,
0: way, I mean, I'm a strong advocate that we, as a community, need to fix or totally reform our recruiting practices. So, you know, right now, if you wanted to go from anywhere really into a think tank, there's no path to do that. Like, there's no jobs fair in the right. fall. You know, there's no, there's nothing like that. Everyone has their own story. I mean, this is what makes your questions at the beginning of your podcast so interesting. Like, how did you end up where you are? And everyone has their own sort of circuitous route usually to where they are. And I think we need, you know, as a sector to be much more sort of systematic in saying, if you want to do this, here are the steps you can follow. And this is a way to apply. And we try to do a little bit of that at Brookings. I'm sure it's CSIS and elsewhere as well, but we have a lot more to do. But until that, until we actually fix that, you know, I think it is sort of important you know, to to try to build a portfolio of policy-relevant work while you're doing sort of your other sort of day job, whether it's a PhD or the military or whatever it is at that moment in time.
1: I totally agree with that. And we're, we're struggling a bit at CSIS trying to find the answer to that question. I think it's important for the future of think tanks in terms of credibility too. If the recruitment is a little too opaque, a little too rarefied, a little too much of the Illuminati, that used to be what's fun about think tanks. But I think in the post-Brexit, You know, world we live in, we got to be smarter about making it clear that recruitment and ideas are more inclusive. So more on that. Tom, you're one of the best minds in Washington on this stuff. So it's been a real treat having you. Thank you. Thanks so much. This is is great. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.